Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day in a rather deserted city of Westminster, it must be said, as once again, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I'm Scott Challoner, and I'm joined on the air today by Mark McDonald. Mark is the Managing Director of Mark McDonald Consultancy Limited, a London-based cosmetics company renowned for its holistic brand management strategies and the delivery of specialist distribution services to global luxury brands. Mark, welcome to the programme, and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you, Scott. Good morning. Great to be here. Thank you ever so much uh, for taking the time to come onto the programme uh, with us. Um, as I say, the purpose of this podcast is to gather together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership as a whole. So what I'd like to understand first and foremost is what that word leader actually means to you, because it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Yeah, I mean, I the most important thing it means to be is lead by example, um, particularly, you know, if you're running your own business, communication is, is, is a big factor in that motivation um, and we'd be really positive all the time a good listener and really you know good decision making um that, that they're, they're the key factors for me in, in the leadership so you would say that your own leadership style is most certainly founded upon those uh, principles for certain absolutely yeah i mean you know every day it's it's important to lead by example to, you know to you know to understand your business and every part of it um and to be really positive about a fantastic positive attitude because that then motivates the team so you know that's part of my my leadership skill every single day in the business and i think um that humility is really important um in the sense of leading by example i think it's much easier to sort of take people with you on that journey as a business and especially if you are able to show that you're going to lead by example you're going to get onto a level with your employees and also that you care enough about them to essentially muck in as well and uh, really get involved in that sense for sure i mean i've spent you know 20 years of my career with was in corporate with ysl and burberry before i started my own business and you know, the one thing I learned there, you know, in, in leadership roles was to, to really understand every part, understand everybody's job, whether it's warehousing, whether it's customer service, whether it's a salesperson or a sales manager. Do that job, understand that, and then, you know, you, you will have that great connection with your team. It's interesting that you raise the importance of that in uh, corporate leadership because uh, generally I think there can be a little bit of a uh, perspective of corporate leadership in particular being a little bit ruthless, being a little bit cutthroat and a bit cut off almost from what's going on further down the chain, as it were. And that's not always the case for those good leaders out there, is it? It's very much in a case of still continuing to engage at that level. I think, you know, you've, you've also got the element where you've got you know the leaders in those com- in those corporate companies. You know there's there's some great leaders, there's some cut. You you definitely do get the cut up. But you know, lucky for me, I had a great a great leader, and you know she taught me you know to have a clear understanding of everybody's role, clear messaging, a clear focus, goals that everybody buys into. So you know you make it how it is, but you make it. Um, accessible and comfortable for people working in that environment because that's when you get the best out of people. You certainly do. Um, and I think getting the best out of those around you is uh, hugely important as a leader, but also in surrounding yourself with people who can also get the best out of you as well. Because for aspiring leaders, there's a great deal of merit, isn't there, in picking your mentors, your advisors carefully? Absolutely. And I think even more now, you know, I'm reflecting with 
the pandemic and the challenges that we have in the economy. Um, you know, it's given me time to, to, to kind of sit back and look, you know, and really come out of this and, and, and have good, strong advisors um, across the business, listen probably more um, to advice and good counsel, um, because that's going to make every business and all the UK businesses stronger as we come through this um, pandemic. And if you were to give advice um, to young aspiring business leaders or any business leader really trying to navigate their firm through this current situation, Mark, based upon that experience that you have, what advice would you have to give them? I think most importantly is stay focused, have absolute conviction in what you want to do, have a good strategy in place um, that you really believe in. Don't Don't divert from that and really... Be consistent in everything that you do around your plan and your strategy. And we've talked an awful lot about um, your approach to leadership and your leadership style uh, today um, as well, Mark. But what would you say have been some of the major influences behind that sort of style that you've taken on? The major influences, you know, in my earlier career where, um, you know, I had some fantastic training within corporate, you know, YSL and Burberry and having great mentors and great leaders kind of shape you for the future. So you take from them what you really believe works for you um, and then just strengthen um, all the areas that you need to make your business successful. And um, are there any examples of leadership figures that you've maybe worked with or maybe people who've just been an inspiration to you uh, throughout um, your career as well? It can, doesn't necessarily have to be people in the public eye. It can literally be anybody. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, my sales director at YSL and our general manager for Dior really was an inspiration to me. You know, the absolute clear focus, goals, strategy. She kind of taught me all of that. And that's gone along with me in my whole career and now throughout my business. So, you know, you are, it does affect you if you have good leaders, you know, in your career. It really does. And I think some of the most influential leaders in that respect can be people who are just getting on with their jobs behind the scenes and are maybe not necessarily in the public eye, like your business figureheads, your politicians, sports personalities, celebrities. And I think sometimes um, as a culture in this country, there's a temptation perhaps to associate leadership with being in the public eye in that way. But some of the best leaders out there, some of the most influential are not necessarily those that are in the public eye and maybe they're not recognized perhaps as much as they should be. Yeah, sure. And I think even now, um, you know, when you look at, you know, who are the leaders now, I mean, definitely, you know, the NHS workers have inspired me mm. because, you know, they've led the way, they're leading the country now. So I think, you know, they're leading through this pandemic. So we have to, you're absolutely right. They're not, they don't need to be a celebrity, a politician. These are real people, everyday people. Absolutely. And it just goes to show as well that as a leader, it's not necessary to really stick your head above the parapet, as it were, as well, because there are some leaders who are, of course, very good at going into uh, the public eye, you know, very very, um, efficient with public relations, for example. But others, they tend to just kind of keep their head down, as uh, we've said already, and just get on with the task at hand behind the scenes, don't they? And uh, again, that just plays to different individual qualities. For sure. And I mean, I mean, even more now, you know, we need, you know, even if you are either a world leader, you know the whole the whole world is, is is needs leadership more than anything now. So I think whether you know you are 
a figurehead or you just get on with the job. Most people, you know, within the UK business community just get on with the job and, and, and they do a fantastic job to drive the economy. And we're seeing that in most businesses at the moment, aren't we? Because um, there are so many great stories out there of businesses who have had to essentially adapt to remote working, perhaps um, some have had to furlough some of their workers, others in uh, other areas have had to continue to go in working on site in certain industries. And yet, they've kept their employees and management alike. They've kept their heads down. They've just got on with it without complaint and just mucked in for the uh, good of the company. And they're actually finding themselves benefiting from the experience of being thrust out of their comfort zones and having to battle through this period of adversity because it's bringing the best out in them, isn't it? And really helping them develop and make more of a close-knit feel among um, a business team. For sure. And I think, you know, we've all been in the UK, you know, we've adapted to what has been pushed in front of us. And I think from that, there's going to be real positives. Um, You know, we've had positives now, how we work, how we rely now on, you know, technology and talking to people with this FaceTime or Zoom. But, you know, not necessarily we need to be at the office because we've all proved that we can we can work remotely. So, you know, there's going to be, you know, we've got to look to the future and there's going to be some real positives in the way in which we work that has come out from these learnings. Exactly. It is a changing um, environment uh, for sure as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and business like it always does and business leaders will have to, of course, adapt their strategies and approaches for one thing. But also it's important every single day to adapt one's leadership style, isn't it? Because managing people, no one singular approach is going to work for everybody, isn't it? There's a difference between um, having people where to encourage them, you need to maybe put an arm around them and whereas others maybe need a little bit more motivation, maybe just a little friendly kick up the backside once in a while. I think most importantly, you know, as a leader, you've got to have a positive attitude. You've got to take people with you. So you lead them, take them with you, motivate them, make them feel part of a team. And it's, you know, everybody puts a team together. You've got to have a really strong team. You have different personalities and different skills within that team. And just bring out the best in people. But most importantly, you know, you've got to have everybody, you've got to have a goal for your team and make sure that everybody buys into that. And if that happens, then you're going to be successful at every point. And if we consider that point um, for a moment there as well, Mark, do you think when it comes to recruitment, especially and looking at people to join certain teams and certain businesses, do you think that potential um, is one of the important factors as opposed to looking for almost a ready finished product in a way? Because we're not infallible as human beings, aren't we? It's still very much a learning experience every single day and we're, we never stop developing in that sense. Sean, I think, you know, you know, we, you know, for the business for 12 years, I think what's important to me is, is looking at people that have the potential and might not necessarily have all the experience that are required, but, you know, it's giving people that opportunity, that platform, um, and, you know, letting people shine and come through because, you know, it's all down to having that good feel about that person as well. We're not all perfect, um, but at the end of the day, you know, if that's an area of, of the industry that you want to be part of, um, you've just got to have that. You've got to give people opportunities to, to be able to, to, to fulfill their, their, um, their career objectives. 
Exactly. And I think those business leaders who are seeing their teams bringing out the best in themselves, especially within this period, are those leaders who have really invested in the people around them, shown that, of course, they care for their well-being, their welfare, especially during this period where there's a renewed focus on mental health as well. And that's what's really going to be churning results out during this uh, period, too. And um, if we think about that route forward, Mark, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, um, do Give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for Mark McDonald Consultancy and also what you hope to achieve, not just within that time, but also for beyond the COVID-19 pandemic as well and your ambitions for then. Well, uh, certainly, you know, we've got to take learnings from from this period. And I think, you know, for the, you know, we were a beauty distribution company, as you introduced us, you know, we supply um, the UK high streets, the great retailers, you know, for the first time ever, you know, the high street is closed in the United Kingdom. So it has had a, a real impact on the retail landscape. So what we intend to do as a business is really look at, you know, what, the, what are the strengths built on digital? That's very, very important because the way that people are purchasing um, has changed um, and we need consumer confidence back. So we're looking at, I'm going to be launching my um, own luxury brand um, later this year. That's what we've been working on through this period um, and working with a major player on licensed brands. So we're going to, we're going to work on creating brands now um, and bring things forward that we probably were going to do 12 or two months down the line. So bring it forward, you know, help start the economy again and have a real important clear goal and strategy in place, you know, to drive the business and drive the UK economy. Because I think, you know, the bottom line is we need to drive that to be able to get consumer confidence back. Mm. Um, And I think the long term is really make sure that, you know, we, we have um, a good plan in place it's strategic um, and it works. Absolutely. And um, I think we always say that hindsight is a wonderful thing. I think in the next few months, once we start to see those hopes born out and we start to see the market environment changing, Mark, it would be really beneficial for the listeners actually to maybe have you back on the programme with us and just catch up on how the consultancy is getting on and how things are altering. Um, but even though we, we are just about out of time uh, for today, I must confess it's been a hugely insightful experience having you um, on the programme uh, with us. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on and speak with me for the listeners' benefit. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Pleasure as well. Thanks ever so much, Mark. Do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on as well. You too. That was Mark McDonald, the Managing Director of Mark McDonald Consultancy Limited. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and also having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. He was first elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett. And that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? 
Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side 
effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods. Uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK, we, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, Those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible, proportional 
balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings. 
uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well.
So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, 
when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need 
an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become 
the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.